All right, everyone, ready for the section two here? Shifting gears to earning as a faithful steward, that first use of money. And these kind of go in the order that they might occur chronologically, right? And I'll just go to these um, five uses of money here. You know, I earn it, I live on it, I give it, I owe it, I grow it. But that's not necessarily the priority we should have as far as importance. So there would be a couple of different ways I could have ordered these biblical uses of money. I kind of did it in order. I've got to, you know, I earn it, I bring it in, I've got to live on it, I give it, owe it, grow it. Um, but, you know, as far as priority, you know, giving. Giving's high priority in uses of money. Giving would be very high. Of course, these other, not, I'm not saying these things are unimportant. But uh, if I'm to prioritize as far as, as a hierarchy of importance, you know, giving would be at the top of that. But in order to give, you have to have something, right? So you've got to earn it. So that's why I'm kind of doing it this way. So that's kind of my logic here. So earn, live, give, owe, and grow. We're going to focus here on the earning aspect. Let me get my notes up here. Okay. So, um, some of you have the notes, some of you don't, but you'll see here, we're going to continue to keep them up here on the screens. So, we start here with uh, earning, and we see this passage here, this verse, these verses here from 1 Thessalonians. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business, and work with your hands just as we commanded you. The importance of work, the value of work. Just as we talked about a few minutes ago before the break, you know, getting to that point, retired, feeling unproductive, got to get back and do something. That's because that's the way God designed you to be, right? He designed us to be this way. And we'll take a look at that. Okay, so earning as a faithful steward. Going back to our, this passage here, or I should say going to this passage here in Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' is teaching, and part of what he says here, no one can serve two masters, for either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth, which we've already discussed. But listen to what follows here. For this reason I say to you, and notice what is emphasized over and over as we walk through this. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Continuing here, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Sometimes we think that the opposite is true. No, we are worth more than the sparrows because we're created in God's image and we are redeemable. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried 
See the repeated term here? Worried about clothing. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Worry, worry, worry demonstrates lack of faith. If you're worried, worried, worried about finances, where is your faith? If you're worried, worried about whether the Lord will take care of you, where is your faith? Jesus goes on, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So what is the response? What are we to do in light of that? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Get your priorities straight. Don't worry. Place your faith in your heavenly Father who cares for you because he's going to take care of you. Seek his kingdom first. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If we just took that to heart, how much more of a peaceful, content life would we live? We understand these fundamental principles that our Heavenly Father cares for us and will provide for us. Okay? Now, as I mentioned, each of these sections opens with an examination of our hearts. And so, here you have uh, point A, spiritual transformation. We want to talk about going from a heart of pride to a heart of gratitude. So when we take a look at pride, the heart of pride, pride leads us to think that we earn money and build wealth through our own ability and effort independent of our heavenly provider. Remember the pharisaical view of money? I did this, I did this, I did this. That's pride. That's a heart of pride. That we did this all independent of our heavenly father. But notice where that's going to lead you. Dependence upon self leads to worry and fear because one looks to the uncertainty of the future and realizes that self alone must provide for one's self and or one's family. Okay, I came this far. I did all this, but what about tomorrow? Well, that's dependent on me too. Now I'm going to start worrying about that. I'm going to be fearful for the future because it's dependent on me. That's the result. This burden of worry and fear robs one of joy and peace and causes one to prioritize the pursuit of finances over faith and family. You just begin to pursue wealth because that's what I got to do to make sure everyone is cared for. So I'm going to worry about that and be fearful of the future. If I don't do this, who will? So it's a wrong placement of your, where you are, who you are depending upon, depending on self or depending on God. 
This pride and sense of self-sufficiently will eventually lead to envy and greed. As one continually compares self to others and seeks to gain more and more without thought of the end result. This, you think through this, and this is where it will lead you. Okay, it's all dependent on me. I've got to go out there. Okay, now what's everybody else doing around me? What do they have? I've got to pursue that. I'm envious. I've got to get more. I've got to get more than the other person. I've got to win this thing. That's just envy and greed. And that will just take you around a road to a road of isolation, bitterness, loneliness. I don't know if you've any, any of you have ever been there, but uh, it's true. That's where this journey will take you, self-reliance. Think about this passage in Revelation 3, the words of the Lord to the church in Laodicea. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. I am self-dependent. And I did this. The response, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Your own little kingdom you built? No. It's not going to stand. You've created a false idea. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I sell to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent of your self-dependency, your self-absorption, thinking that you've done all this when you haven't, and what you've built is worthless. You need things of eternal value from me. Okay? So that's the heart of pride. That's where it leads us. We need to move from that to a heart of gratitude. Replace that pride because pride says I'm dependent on self. I don't need to thank anybody but myself. But when you rely upon someone else to be your provider, our Heavenly Father is our provider, what's our response for that? God, we did this together. Yes. High five, you get some of the credit, I get some of the credit. No. Nope. God, you give it all. My only response can be gratitude, a thankful heart. So replacing that pride with gratitude transforms our heart to humbly accepting that the Lord is our provider and we're dependent on him to meet all of our needs. From that little book, what Jesus has to say about your money, Cortinas and Baumer, these two authors write, gratitude undergirds and supports contentment, trust, and love in the same way a foundation holds up a house. It may be invisible most of the time, but without it, the house won't stay standing for long. 
should be the fundamental aspect of your financial life. After you understand all the biblical worldview we talked about, gratitude, a life of gratitude, a heart of gratitude, that's going to be fundamental. Gratitude understands that the Lord grants skills, abilities, opportunities, experience, and even the air that we breathe. Would we be alive today if the Lord had not granted us life and sustains our life? Even at the very moment right now, we're breathing air because God graciously gave it to us. We are alive because God is gracious to keep us alive. And the only response is to praise him, to give him thanks. He's the divine giver of all things. These authors continue here. When they were going through this journey and examining what Jesus had to say about true riches, Their response was this, we no longer depend on our own ability to earn money for sustenance and life. Both of these guys were, you know, um, grads from Ivy League schools and had great incomes. But it took them on a journey through understanding Scripture and Jesus' words to come to this point to where they said, we recognize God as the provider, humbly thanking him for bringing resources to us. Everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. This mindset fosters an amazing sense of peace. There's no need to obsess over counting our money or imagining what we'll earn next year when we instead recognize that God is the source of all good things and he loves us perfectly where we are today. He provides for us exactly what we need. I don't need to worry about next year. I don't need to worry about that. doesn't mean I don't plan and I'm not wise about the future, but I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to be fearful of it. I'm sure some of you have gone through situations where you've lost your job and you're wondering, where, does, where is the income going to come from? How am I going to provide for my family? On God's providence, he's brought you through that, and he will always bring you through that. Right? Until the day we are called home, we are an invincible. Is that true? Until the day we are called home by our creator, our master, we are invincible. I'm not saying, okay, now I go out and do foolish things. No, not at all. And the issue, of course, is we don't know when that day is going to be, right? So I'm not saying go out and do foolish things because you're invincible. No, I'm saying God has predetermined the day you will go home. He's predetermined that. It's set. It will happen. So, just be faithful now. Be faithful now. And understand, he's going to provide everything I need until that day. And again, outside of our American context, think of that in countries where the persecution, even though it's starting here, is not anywhere to the depth that it is in other countries where Christianity is illegal and there are severe consequences for being a Christian, penalties, loss of job, 
loss of relationships, maybe even loss of life. How are those martyrs throughout the world able to give testimony before their death that God is a good God and this is in his plan and even this day of my death, I give him praise for that. How do they do that? They don't have a heart of pride, I guarantee you that. They have a heart of gratitude. And Lord, grant us the grace to endure to such a degree as that if we are ever brought to that position. Again, going back to King David and his prayer to the Lord. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heaven and on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. And then it picks up where we left off last time when we were reading this passage. All things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Everything that we've given here, Lord, for the building of this temple came from you. We're just giving back a portion of that to you. It's all from you. It was all yours to begin with. We're giving back a portion. And you've blessed us immensely. All right, so that's the first kind of heart attitude that we want to examine. And I hope you will take the time to examine your own hearts. Where is pride? Where is pride in this realm of my life? Root it out, Lord. Root it out. Give me a heart of gratitude to replace it. A heart of thanksgiving. And that will transform your life there. That will transform your understanding of your finances. Right? Okay. So now let's get into um, some other principles here, some biblical principles for a healthy economy. Touched on some of these things lightly, but uh, let's talk about some biblical principles. So first of all, fair wages for honest work. This is what Scripture demands of employers or masters. Employers are to pay their employees a fair wage based on the work performed and the diligent with which it is performed. Wages should not be withheld. Consider Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You've hired a man to do a job. He finishes that job that day. You give him his wages that day for the work he's done. That was the principle. Don't withhold it. Deuteronomy 24, very similarly. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your own countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on the day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it. He needs it, so that you will not cry, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin to you. 
see Jeremiah 22:13 Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages Hire a person to do their job an employer over an employee must pay their wages This is fair equitable and justice righteousness 1 Timothy 5:18 but the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Same principle is given to us there. Romans 4.4, 4. in the context of uh, faith versus works here, but an underlying principle is taught through the workplace. Romans 4.4, 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited to him as a favor, but as what is due. Right? And that goes along with the previous. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Men are called upon to deal honestly when conducting business. Proverbs 11.1. 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 16.11, a just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. Very practical, right? In God's economy, he desires fairness. Don't cheat others. Pay workers their wages. Use just weights and balances. Proverbs 20, differing weights and differing measures. Both of them are abominable to the Lord. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord and a false scale is not good. So many practical applications for that in our workplace, in our dealings with others, right? Deal honestly, fairly in all that you do. Don't try to cheat others. Don't try to gain more for yourself by cheating your neighbor or your worker. Proverbs 13.11, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. So, getting to this primary means of acquiring money through work. That is God's designed way for us. doesn't mean there are not other means that we acquire funds, but this is his primary means for us to acquire funds to meet our needs and beyond. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 and 20 through 26. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So it's a good thing. It's a good thing. This is a blessing from the Lord to be able to work. And that work is considered a good thing. And to eat the fruit of that to enjoy. This is a blessing from the Lord. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. And there's a footnote I want to mention here. 
that uh, is not up on the board either, not up on the screens, footnote 25 in your notes, should go without saying that a faithful steward never gains wealth through the pursuit of gambling or lotteries, throwing your money to chance. That is not for the believer. Also, seeking get-rich-quick schemes, which probably have all come across our path at some point in life or another, and we're tempted to pursue that. I'm going to just put a little money here, and it's going to give me a thousandfold back. That's the promise I've been given. No. That's not the way God has designed for you. And we're going to see that wealth quickly gained is quickly lost. It's not the way God has designed for us. Okay? So a little side note there. But I just wanted to mention that because that often comes up in this discussion. Okay? So going back to establishing why this is so vital, why is work so important for us? We're going to make the argument biblically here. First of all, first point, God is the ultimate worker. And he set the example by working six days during the first week of creation and resting on the seventh, which he called the Sabbath. Did he rest on Wednesday? Like, oh, I got half of my work done. I'm going to rest this day. And then the rest of the week, these remaining three days, I'll finish up the work. No, he did the work six days and rested on the seventh. Did he need to rest? No, he didn't need to rest. But we'll see why he did when we get to Exodus. But for right now, Genesis 1, God saw all that he made. Behold, it was very good. His creation was his work. Six days, creating it all. At the end of the sixth day, there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. His work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. He didn't expend any ounce of energy where his power went down at any point during creation, Right? So it's not like, oh, I got to rest and get replenished. He didn't need to rest, but he did. And he set an example. And we're going to see that for Israel, right? If we look at Exodus 20, for in six days, what's the justification for working and then resting on the Sabbath? Moses points back to God's creative work. Here is your pattern, Israel. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Israel, you are to work six days and you are to rest on the seventh because this is what God did. And he has set a pattern for you, Israel. So under the Mosaic Covenant, this was the pattern. Work six days, rest the seventh, right? So let's take a look at some of these aspects of God's work and just name some of these. Creativity. 
Right? God is a creative God. God's act of bringing the universe into existence over a period of six days was a creative act. And he created everything out of nothing. The creation puts his mind on display. His creation is not only complex, it is beautiful and meant to be enjoyed. Of course, it has been affected by the fall. But nonetheless, we still have his created order. Okay? So God is a creative God. We, we can't ever even begin to reach the ends of his creation. Even with the strongest telescope that we can make, we can never see into the farthest places. Billions, billions of galaxies. Why did God do it? Put himself on display. This is who I am. I created it all. And you will never reach the end of my creation. Right? Think of those billions and billions of galaxies that no one will even ever see. That's God putting his creative mind on display. Number two, diligence. As I mentioned, he created everything in six days. Everything. It's like, didn't leave anything unfinished. He's a diligent God. He determined a plan. I'm going to create things in six days, and on the seventh I will rest. I'm finished. He did it with excellence. Everything, he pronounced himself good every day, and on the final day, very good, because he added man to his, as the crowning act of his creation. Everything is very good. There's no plan B. He didn't create, commit any errors. He did everything with perfection and excellence. Satisfaction. God was satisfied with everything he had made. The universe lacked nothing that he designed for it to possess. Lacked nothing. So he was satisfied. It's very good, and he rested as a result. How about provision? Through his creation, he provides for man's needs and enjoyment. We can take great pleasure in what God has created. All of our physical needs are met through creation. Everything that we need to exist, and I'm not talking necessarily about the spiritual realm, I'm just talking about the physical realm. Everything that we need is here. It's been created for us. Why is it so important to lay this groundwork? Because now we need to reflect on who we are and what we are to do in light of who God is and what he has done. Okay, so point two, man fulfills God's purposes for himself through work. Since he has been created in the image of God and is directed to follow God's example. Right? So let's go through those same aspects and apply them to ourselves. Creativity. Since man is created in the image of God, he possesses the creative abilities that no other creatures possess. And we must use those creative abilities to glorify God. Fallen man often uses his creative abilities to distort God's creation and reject God as creator. 
But man's design is to glorify God through his creative abilities and enjoy what he is able to create as the image bearer of God. God created everything out of nothing. We create out of what God has given us. And we reflect the mind of God in our creativity. Look at everything in this room that exists. None of this was in a natural state. Man took resources, created those bricks, put those bricks together in a pattern to create a building, designed chairs and tables and computers. He took what God has created and continued the process because man is given dominion over everything and creates, creates, creates. Look at what man has created. And everything that he creates should go back and say, the creator gave me the power and the ability to do this. But man doesn't do that. Man is arrogant and thinks he's, he is the ultimate ends and our creative abilities. Now, does man use those creative abilities corruptly? He certainly can and does. Yes. But we as believers are to use that, our creative talents and abilities to reflect the creative mind of God. I'll take a little sidebar here into, let's just consider the world of, of art, creativity. When we think creativity, we often think of art. But we certainly think of all these other things that have been created here that we even look at in this room. But just consider what man has done with art. When you see what is called modern art, what is that? That is a distortion of reality as God has created it. That mumbo-jumbo mess that you've created that you think is worth millions of dollars is garbage. It doesn't reflect the mind of God. You've taken and distorted the creative mind God has given you and turned it into something twisted that doesn't reflect reality. I don't know about you, but that's not beautiful to me. That's not beauty. When I see art that reflects creation, that's beautiful. Because it's reflecting how God has created things. Right? You see a Michelangelo sculpture and you marvel at the reality of it, how close it approximates a human. That's beauty. Or, you know, a painting by Rembrandt or somebody like that. It just reflects things as they are and brings out the beauty of what God created. It doesn't distort and twist and turn it. That's man's rebellion. Modern art is just a rebellion against God. That's what it is. And we shouldn't dive in and join in with the world that says, oh, look at the amazing creative skills of this person. No, you've twisted and distorted the creativity that God's given you. Sorry, that's a little sidebar. I'll get off my soapbox there. But God is a creative God, and we are to reflect his creativity. 
because we're created in his image. How about diligence? Right? Are we to work until the job is done? Yes. Why? Because God did. Six days worked, said it's very good, finished his creative work, rested on the seventh. Managed to pattern his work ethic after God's work ethic. Not to be lazy or wasteful, since God is not lazy or wasteful. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. How about excellence? Man should pursue excellence in all that he does because this reflects God's performance of excellence through his creative act. We look at everything that God created and it is perfect exactly as he had created it to be with excellence. So when we work, we should reflect that. Okay, God, you are a God of excellence. In your work, you did everything with excellence. Let me also do that. Look at this, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. You see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Because he's performing something with such a high degree of excellence that the king wants him in his service. How about satisfaction? Should we take satisfaction in our work? We should. Understanding that God gives us the ability to do it in the first place, the talents, the ability, the time. So man should take satisfaction from his work just as God took satisfaction from his work. God pronounced it all very good. So we should be able to say, God, you've given me these talents and abilities. I've done this work. I've done it with excellence. And I can be satisfied with what the end product is because it reflects who you are. It gives you glory for me to do this. And how about for provision? God has provided a rich environment in which man can provide for himself and for his family. So all the resources we need to earn a living to provide for families, it's, it's there. And so work consists of doing things with God's created order that provide provision and help others and reflect his provision for us. This all making sense? Okay. Number three, work was instituted by God prior to the fall, which we've also mentioned already. In Genesis 2, this is not Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the fall. Genesis 2, then God, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Work is not a part of the curse. Work is a blessing. Work is a blessing from the Lord. I know some of you are going, I'm not my job. But maybe you need a new perspective. Work is not a curse. As I mentioned, although work became more difficult after the fall of man, it is still a blessing. Genesis 3, after the fall, then Adam said, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It's going to be more difficult. You're already called to cultivate and keep it. But now that challenge is going to be greater. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right? So work is not a part of the curse. Work is part of God's created design before the fall. It just is more difficult now. Number four, work builds godly character while laziness leads to evil. Some Proverbs here. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. goes kind of back to things you were talking about earlier, Sam, that the soul of the diligent is made fat. The hard worker is able to enjoy. God gives him that. God doesn't say, you work, you produce something, now you don't get to enjoy any of that. No, you've created, so you are able to enjoy the fruits of your labors. Proverbs fifteen nineteen: the way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. The life of the sluggard, let's compare the sluggard to the diligent. Loss of creativity. The sluggard fails to reflect God's image when he loses his creative ability because of slothfulness. Proverbs 24. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw, when I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Ecclesiastes 10.18, through indolence the rafters sag and through slackness the house leaks. It's the lazy man, the sluggard. His house is falling apart. Pursuit of laziness, Proverbs 15, 19. Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. Verse 24 in chapter 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. He's so lazy, can't even bring the food up to put into his mouth. That's how lazy he is. For the life of the sluggard, this results in physical and mental degradation or degeneration or degradation. Foolishness. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. The sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. There's too many risks. Can't go out there. Did you see a lion? No, but there could be one. There could be one. I'm going to be killed, so not going to go out there. Better stay safe. Again, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. 
he's weary of even bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. The sluggard becomes a burden to his employer and to society as a whole, if he still has an employer. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. Results in boredom, which leads to sin. Proverbs 18.9, He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who, restore, who destroys. Loss of Christian fellowship. The one who refuses to work is to be put out of the church. 1 Thessalonians 3 is very clear about that. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. Some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Let's shift and turn to the life of the diligent in contrast to that. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is his diligence. Dayton writes here, a primary purpose of work is to produce character. While the carpenter is building a house, the house is also building the carpenter. Right? Skill, diligence, manual dexterity, and judgment are refined. A job is not merely a task designed to earn money. It is also intended to produce godly character in the life of the believer. Man's duty is to be faithful and content. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work your, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You have that attitude when you go into your office or your place of work towards your work. I'm working for the Lord. Consider your attitude toward works. If you could see the person of Jesus Christ as your boss, would you try to be more faithful in your job? The more important question you need to answer every day as you begin your workday is, for whom do I work? You work for Christ. Life of the diligent. God will promote a faithful worker if and when he chooses. Remember the life of Joseph. Was Joseph always in a position of prominence? No. He endured many years unjustly in prison. The Lord sovereignly determined when and where he would put Joseph in a position of authority as a steward. Psalm 57, For not from the east nor from the west nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. have to leave that in his hands. For Samuel 2.7, The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and also exalts. Remember that, the Lord makes poor and rich. Will we defeat poverty? No. Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you. You will always have the poor among you. We're not going to defeat poverty. We're certainly called upon to alleviate the poverty of the poor as much as we can in the context that we can. 
But remember, it's the Lord who makes poor and rich. The life of the diligent, God will promote a faithful worker if and when he chooses. Here again in Luke 12, the Lord said, who is then is the faithful and sensible steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to give him their rations at the proper time. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. That's up to the master. What's my duty? To be faithful. Man should work hard but not be a workaholic. Turn work into an idol. Don't want to do that. Commitment to the Lord should always come before work. Matthew 6, 33 34. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Always put the Lord first. The family should hold a high place in a man's priorities. First Timothy, again talking about qualifications for elders. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? First Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So although God is the ultimate provider, God has given a duty to the husband, the father, for his family. To work to provide for them. Work hard, but be able to find rest over the pursuit of riches. Ecclesiastes 5.12, the sleep of the working man is pleasant. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Because the rich man, in this context, is not working. He hasn't used his hands and labored with his mind or his hands to bring himself to the point of exhaustion so that his sleep is sweet and pleasant. Dayton writes here, if your job is so demands... Jobs demand so much of your time and energy that you neglect your relationship with Christ or your family, then you are working too hard. Perhaps the job is too demanding or your work habits need changing. If you tend to be a workaholic, take extra precautions to guard against forsaking your other priorities. So there's the lazy, then there's the ones who overwork and neglect other important aspects of their lives. So we don't want to fall... into the ditch on either side of that road. As I've already said, man is meant to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Ecclesiastes 9, go to the ant, go then, eat your, oh, the ant, that's another um, context, sorry. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So whatever you do, do it with all your might. And the fruit of that, the Lord allows you to enjoy. There isn't anything wrong with that. Although we sometimes think we 
and we feel guilty when we shouldn't. Now, you have to have proper perspective on that. So don't think, oh, my whole life is about comfort and ease and enjoyment. That's not the point. It's I worked very hard and diligently, and part of that equation is that the Lord allows me to enjoy what I've worked so hard and diligently to produce. Yet a man must not work as if God does not exist. He must realize that God provides as he is diligent and not imbalanced in his attitude towards work and family. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. If it's all dependent on you, I've got to get up early, I've got to work late, and I've got to produce this without any aspect that God is the one who's providing. God's the one who gives you the ability have proper perspective, proper priorities. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. The Lord is giving to us even when we're sleeping. Okay, there's some, we're coming to an end here. Um, then we're going to have lunch in just a few minutes, but let me just close this out. Um, there are other means of acquiring financial resources other than work, which we will talk about, saving and investing, uh, even an in inheritance, And strangely enough, contrary to our natural inclinations, giving is a means of acquiring. And when we get to the giving section, we'll talk about that. Not in some kind of prosperity, name it and claim it, false gospel. That's not what we're talking about here. But we'll see what scripture has to say about that, right? Even here in Luke 6, 37, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, yet it results only in want. A generous man scatters, and yet the Lord gives him more. Is that a promise to you that you're going to become rich No, it's not. But there's a general principle here, a truism here, a proverb. Also in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9. Now I say to this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Spread, scatter, and you will reap bountifully. God loves a chill forgiver, etc. Okay, final reminder here from Dayton. And if, if you want to ask a couple questions, we can here as we get ready for lunch. A final reminder. If we concentrate solely on saving and investing, our focus and affection will gravitate there. We will be drawn inexorably by those possessions. But if we balance our saving and investing by giving generously to the Lord, we can still love Christ first with all our heart. Just saying there should be a proper balance here. All right? So, any questions? I think as we get further into this, the more the practical questions will come. But I think we've addressed some of this already and some of the questions that were asked. Yes, here's... Any practical wisdom on 
Yeah, expectations for what a workaholic life looks like. I mean, that, again, is, is, I think, can be relative. I mean, there's certainly times in my industry where it requires more time of me, um, and I have to put in that time. But I had a very wise um, professor, uh, Dr. Busnitz, from seminary days, because seminary requires a lot of time, uh, especially if you have a family. And so his, his um, instruction to me was, you've got to put money in the bank in order to be able to withdraw it. In other words, you've got to spend that time when you have less work and use it by spending it with your family and so that when those times come of the days that are long and hard, you can withdraw some of that because you've already banked some of it and your family can be more understanding. But if you're always withdrawing, 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 you're going to say, where's our time? You don't give any time to us. Right? So you're working all the time. So it's a matter not necessarily of hours, a workaholic. It's a, it's a matter of priorities. Right? Am I giving up my time and energy to serve in the local church? Is, is that being robbed by my job? Am I giving time and energy to my family, you know, to where I'm spending time with them doing the things that, you know, families do? So and I know it's a very general thing. Um, some jobs require a lot of hours, a lot of time away from family. But, you know, if you're single, um, you may have more of that time. But still, you don't want to rob God by not serving in his church. And so, you know, I think I probably have to take each individual person's life and, and you would have to examine, okay, is this, am I a workaholic or not? Because one person might be doing the same job, same number of hours, and squandering the rest of the time where another person is strategic about that and is, is spending hours and time where it's not affecting family life as much as that. So I don't even know if that really answers your question because I don't necessarily have a answer that everyone could say, oh, now I understand what a workaholic is. It's really about um, the priorities that you have and the hard attitude that you have and we would have to examine each person's individual. So, and maybe if we want to delve into that further on a one-to-one basis, we can. But hopefully that gives something there. And I'll probably think of a better answer later. But, uh, anything else? Anybody? Everybody's going, I'm hungry. Yes, ma'am. You're also in tears for a different reason. <laughs> so you even saying that um, modern art is not Thank you. So, yeah, just there was a comment there about um, modern art being uh, an attitude of rebellion against God. So, okay. Anything else? All right, everybody's going, no, let's, let's eat. So, Marco, thank you. Well, we got one more? Yeah, yes, I will. Yeah, so uh, Marco's got uh, food for us, some pizza here, so we can all enjoy that. So we'll look at um, going back and starting at 1230, but let me pray and just give God thanks for our time already and for this food we can enjoy together. So pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, 
um, hopefully when we say, we pause now and we say that um, you are a provider, that, ha that has just deeper meaning to us, and even this food that we can enjoy um, comes from the creative hand of, of men that you blessed with ability to take resources, natural resources, and turn it into something else that we can enjoy. And so help us to be um, just grateful, have hearts of gratitude, and just to sing of your praises and to enjoy this time together. Thank you for all that you've taught us so far and help us to finish out this day faithfully for your honor and glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.